Part 7 of Exile from Space by Judith Merrill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jen Broda. Part 7 There was still some snow on the mountain top. Down below it would be warm yet, but up there it was cold. The big empty house was full of dust and chill, and I brought fear in with me. I wished I had known where I was going when I left my room. I wanted my coat. I wanted something to read while I waited. I remembered the library book and almost went back. Instead, I went to the dark room and back that had once been somebody's kitchen and opened the cupboard and found the projector and yelled for help. I didn't know where they were, how far away, whether cruising or landed somewhere, or how long it would take. All I could be sure of was that they couldn't come till after dark, full dark, and that would be, on the mountain top at least another four hours. There was a big round black stove in a front room that looked as if it could burn wood safely. I went out and gathered up everything I could find nearby that looked to be combustible and started a fire and began to feel better. I beat the dust off a big soft chair and pulled it over close to the stove and curled up in it, warm and drowsy, and knowing that help was on the way. I fell asleep, and I was in the car with Larry again, in front of that hotel, every cell of my body tingling awake, and I woke up and moved the chair farther back away from the fire and watched the sunset through the window, till I fell asleep again and dreamed again, and when I woke, the sun was gone, but the mountaintop was brightly lit. I had forgotten about the moon. I tried to remember what time it rose and when it set, but all I knew was it had shone as bright last night in the Garden of the Gods. I walked around and went outside and got more wood, and when it was hot in the room again, I fell asleep, and Larry's hands were on my shoulders but he wasn't kissing me. He was shouting at me. He sounded furious, but I couldn't feel any anger. You goddamn little idiot, he shouted. What in the name of all that's holy? Put you over my knee and, for God's sake, baby, he stopped shouting. What did you pull a dumb trick like this for? I was scared. I didn't even plan to do it. I just did. Scared? My God, I should think you would be. Now listen, babe. I don't know yet what's going on, and I don't think I'm going to like it when I find out. I don't like it already that you told me a pack of lies last night. Just the same, God help me, I don't think it's what it sounds like. But I'm the only one who doesn't. Now you better give it to me straight, because they've got half the security personnel of this entire area out hunting for you— and nobody else is going to care much what the truth is. My God, on top of everything else, you had to run away. Now give out, kid, and make it good. This one has got to stick. I didn't understand a lot of what he said. I started trying to explain, but he wouldn't listen. He wanted something else, and I didn't know what. Finally, he made me understand. He'd almost believed my story the night before. Almost, but there was a detail somewhere that bothered him. 
He couldn't remember it at first. It kept nudging around the edge of his mind, but he didn't know what it was. He forgot about it for a while. Then, in the garden, I made my second big mistake. He didn't explain all of this then. He just accused, and I didn't understand this part completely until later. I wanted him to park the car. Any girl on earth, no matter how sheltered, how inexperienced, would have known better than that. As he saw it, he had to decide whether I was just so carried away by the night and the mood and the moment that I didn't care, or whether my apparent innocence was a pose all along. When we separated in front of the hotel that night, we both had to take the same road for a while. Larry was driving right behind me for a good three miles before I turned off at the motel, and that was when he realized what the detail was that had been bothering him. My car. The first time he saw me, I was driving a different make and model with Massachusetts plates on it. He was sure of that because he had copied it down when he left the luncheonette the first time we met. Larry had never told me very clearly about the kind of work he did. I knew it was something more or less classified, having to do with aircraft, jet planes, or experimental rockets, or something like that. And I knew, without his telling me, that the work, not just the job, but the work he did at it, was more important to him than anything else ever had been. More important, certainly, than he had ever expected any woman to be. So naturally, when he met me that day and knew he wanted to see me again, but couldn't get my address or any other identifying information out of me, he had copied down the license number of my car and turned it in with my name to the security officer on the project a man who has spent almost every waking moment from the age of nine planning and preparing to fit himself for a role in humanity's first big fling into space, doesn't endanger his security status by risking involuntary contamination from an attractive girl. The little aircraft plant on the fringes of town was actually a top-secret key division in the satellite project, and if you worked there— you took precautions. The second time I met him at the luncheonette, he had been waiting so long and had so nearly given up any hope of my coming that he was no longer watching the road or the door when I finally got there, and when he left, he was so pleased at having gotten a dinner date with me that he didn't notice much of anything at all. Not except out of the corner of one eye, and with only the slightest edge of subconscious recognition, just enough so that some niggling detail that was out of place kept bothering him thereafter, and just enough so that he made a point of stopping in the security office again that afternoon to add my new motel address to the information he'd given them the day before. The three-mile drive in back of my Colorado plates was just about long enough finally, to make the discrepancy register consciously. Larry went home and spent a bad night. His feelings toward me, as I could hardly understand at the time, were a great deal stronger, or at least more clearly defined, than mine about him. But since he was more certain just what it was he wanted, 
and less certain what I did, every time he tried to fit my attitude in the car into the rest of what he knew, he'd come up with a different answer, and nine answers out of ten were angry and suspicious and agonizing. Now look, babe, he said, you've got to see this. I trusted you, really, all the time. I did trust you. But I didn't trust me. By the time I went to work this morning, I was half nuts. I didn't know what to think, that's all. And I finally sold myself on the idea that if you were what you said you were, nobody would get hurt. And well, if you weren't on the level, I better find out, quick. You see that? Yes, I said. Okay. So I told them about the license plates and about the other stuff. What other stuff? What else was there? How stupid could I be? I mean, the, in the car, the way you, listen, kid, he said, his face grim and demanding again. It's still just as true as it was then. I still don't know. They called me this evening and said when they got around to the motel to question you, you'd skipped out. They also said that the Massachusetts car was stolen, and there were a couple of other things they'd picked up that they wouldn't tell me, but they've got half the National Guard and all the Boy Scouts out after you by now. They wanted me to tell them anything I could think of that might help them find this place. I couldn't think of anything while I was talking to them. Right afterwards, I remembered plenty of things, which roads you were familiar with and what you'd seen before and what you hadn't, stuff like that. So, so you, so I came out myself. I wanted to find you first. Listen, babe, I love you. Maybe I'm a sucker and maybe I'm nuts and maybe I don't know what, but I figured maybe I could find out more and easier on you than they could. And honey, it better be good, because I don't think I've got what it would take to turn you in. And now I've found you. He let it go there, but that was plenty. He was willing to listen. He wanted to believe in me, because he wanted me. And finding me in the house I'd described, where I'd said it was, had him half convinced but I still had to explain those Massachusetts plates, and I couldn't. I was psychologically incapable of telling him another lie now. And when I knew I would never see him again, that this was the last time I could ever possibly be close to him in any way, I couldn't estrange myself by lying. And I was also psychologically incapable, I found out, of telling the truth. They'd seen to that. It was the first time I'd ever hated them. The first time, I suppose, that I fully realized my position with them. I could not tell the truth, and I would not tell a lie. All I could do was explain this and hope he would believe me. I could explain, too, that I was no spy, no enemy, and those who had prevented me from telling what I wanted to tell were no menace to his government or his people. He believed me. It was just that simple. He believed me. Because I suppose he knew, without knowing how he knew it, that it was the truth.
Humans are not incapable of communication. They are simply unaware of it. I told him also that they were coming for me, that I had called them, and, regretfully, that he had better leave before they came. You said they weren't enemies or criminals. You were telling the truth, weren't you? Yes, I was. They won't harm you, but they might. I couldn't say it. I didn't know the words when I tried to say it. Might take you away with them? With us? Might what? Might. Oh, I don't know. Now he was suspicious again. All right, he said. I'll leave. You come with me. It was just that simple. Go back with him. Let them come and not find me. What could they do? Their own rules would keep them from hunting for me. They couldn't come down among the people on Earth. Go back. Stop running. We got into his car, and he turned around and smiled at me again, like the other time. I smiled back, seeing him through a shiny kind of mist, which must have been tears. I reached for him, and he reached for me at the same time. When we let go, he tried to start the car, but it wouldn't work. Of course, I'd forgotten till then. I started laughing and crying at the same time in a sort of crazy way and took him back inside and showed him the projector. They'd forgotten to give me any commands about not doing that, I guess, or they thought it wouldn't matter. It did matter. Larry looked it over and puzzled over it a little and fooled around and asked me some questions. I didn't have much technical knowledge, but I knew what it did and he figured out the way it did it. Nothing with an electromagnetic motor was going to work while that thing was turned on, not within a mile or so in any direction, and there wasn't any way to turn it off. It was a homing beam, and it was on to stay. Foolproof. That was when he looked at me and said slowly, You got here three days ago, didn't you, babe? I nodded. There was, God damn it, it's too foolish. There was a, a flying saucer story in the paper that day. Somebody saw it land on a hilltop somewhere, some crackpot, some, how about it, kid? I couldn't say yes, and I couldn't say no. And I did the only thing that was left, which was to get hysterical in a big way. He had to calm me down, of course and I found out why the television shows stop with the kiss. The rest is very private and personal. End of Part 7